But I'm really glad to be here. When we cooked up this plan, our idea was, well, I think writing the blog, basically, which about 100,000, gets about 100,000 page views a month, um, taught me just the power of having a conversation that people weren't having. And uh, probably a lot of people in this room are practitioners of some sort. Practitioners, wave your hand at me. In a little while, you're going to get a feedback form. And one of the questions we ask on that is, are you a professional maker? Are you an arch or landscape arch, something like that? Um, are you a professional worker? Are you play worker, teacher, something like that? Or are you an enlightened amateur? <laughs> and I definitely would put myself in the enlightened amateur category. But and I assume you practitioners were having conversations about playground design amongst yourselves, <laughs> right? But that really wasn't happening out in the wider culture. And um, I started thinking about playgrounds myself. Um, like Tim said, I am a nanoscientist. This is a scientific artifact or a graph, which we'll talk about here in a minute. We're going to start with a little science. Um, I am, by, by training, by background, a scientist. I took a year off several years ago, took a sabbatical from the laboratory, and did the MA in Garden History at the University of Bristol. That's the fact that I, I come to England at least a couple times a year. And, um, but I didn't really work on playgrounds there, though I think that, that background in landscape and culture were really useful when I came to playgrounds. But um, the way I got started on the blog was that my, my uh, small church in Oklahoma needed a new playground for the kids. And I said, right, I'll look into that. And I did what you do, which you go talk to some people and get a few catalogs and that sort of thing. And the smallest thing that they wanted to sell was $25,000. And it didn't even look like much fun. <laughs> so I went to Google. And the first 50 pages of Google's were the same things, exactly the same things, maybe slightly altered in colors, basically what you would call a poles and a platform kit. And that was just a total non-starter for me. And I thought, well, you know, I know there's interesting things that artists and architects have done. And, and where are these things? So I started finding them, keeping them in a file on my computer, and finally just thought, right, I'll put them on a blog. Maybe other people are looking for this information, too. <laughs> and the blog is just, has just really grown from there. But I think what it shows is that there is, one, a groundswell of interest in better design spaces for children. And two, that this was a conversation that wasn't happening in the wider world. And partly that is your fault as practitioners. <laughs> I'll just say that right now. So when you see yourself come up in these, what we're going to talk about in a little while, about these phases and boundaries and thinking about uh, playgrounds in terms of phase and boundary space, um, that you think about how you can push into those boundaries and expand those yourself. So right, so as I said, this is um, a piece of scientific interest here. If I graph on a um, axis of temperature and pressure the states in which water exists, I get lines that look like this. Okay? And in that region of the graph, it's a solid. And in that region of the graph, it's a liquid. And in that region of the graph, it's, graph, it's a gas. Okay? And this is called a phase diagram. Now, what I want you to take away from this is that when you're in the body of the graph, when you're in that solid space, in that liquid space, in that gas space, nothing is happening there. Okay? It's a stable space. It's a low energy space. It's a space where you are one thing, not many things, but one thing, and you're going to stay that one thing and you're not going to move. Okay? So everything interesting, everything interesting in science happens at the boundaries. And as Tim said, I'm a nanoscientist. And one of the reasons you do that is because you're making more boundary space, right? Making more surface area, making more places where things come together and react, right? And that's the kind of mental construct that I want you to take into this talk that I'm going to give, is the idea of phase and boundary. And in science, boundary is not a bad word. It doesn't mean limitation, right? just means the physical space in which something exists and that that has edges, right? As all things do, Nothing's, we're not talking about limitless space here. 
But everything interesting happens at the boundaries or the paces that those phases meet. At the boundaries, you have energy changes, you have phase changes, you have transformation. And that's how we're going to think about playgrounds this evening. So my goal really is to talk about trends, but I want to talk about them within the construct of this idea of phase and boundary and how we can use it to think about playgrounds. So one of the ways we might think about this is just the, the sheer physical space of the playground. I mean, the playground, as we talk about it, typically has a physical boundary. Sometimes, heaven forbid, it's a fence, right? Shouldn't be that, but many times it is. But in general, it's some sort of a bounded space that has been carved out of the city and said, we're devoting this to children, and that's a good thing, but it's also a limiting thing. So what about the other parts of the city? What about the street? What about the cityscape itself? Everything interesting, everything that you don't already know about playgrounds is going to happen in these boundaries, along these boundaries line, along these boundary lines, in the conditions where these two things meet. We might also talk about the function of the space, how we define spaces as functional. And again, we have this kind of discrete object that we work with called the playground. But increasingly, you're seeing a drive for people to overlap that with a garden, right? To push the playground and the garden to put the garden and the playground, or what we might think of as the wider park, the wider landscape. And also to um, see a conversation between the playground and the gallery, right? Between the playground as a designed object, and finally, which is one of the reasons I was frustrated when I first started the blog, finally seeing this as a quality designed object, okay? Playground equipment is, un is undoubtedly a designed object, but many times it's not very nice to look at, right? And seeing this as a space that is gallery worthy or is as interesting as a designed object, as something that in a gallery is in a gallery. Once again, we know what happens when we stay in the phases, right? We know what a playground is, we know what a garden is, we know what a gallery is, and we know where they are, nothing is changing. But everything interesting is going to happen at the boundaries of these constructs of thought. I want you as well, because I think probably a lot of you are practitioners, to think about the space of, its, of the stakeholders of a playground. Um, you know, we have the professionals, the, the architecture and landscape architecture firms, you certainly have the manufacturers. I sometimes get angry emails from them. You have the charitable organizations, people that are, um, you know, promoting playgrounds for some reason, for some charitable purpose, kind of the Save the Children organizations. You have parks and recs departments, um, which, which is what we would call them in states. They're probably called something different here. And I think those people are having a conversation amongst themselves, <laughs> but they're really not touching their boundaries very well, right? Um, one of the really interesting things to me about the blog, and of course in a blog you're well placed to talk to a variety of constituencies, and I think that's one of the really valuable things about kind of where I perch um, as the author. It's it would, I think you would be surprised at how much the parents and educators feel totally shut out of this conversation. Feel absolutely totally shut out. And you know, somebody that's um, living in a high dollar designed modern dwelling and reading Dwell magazine, I don't know what the equivalent would be over here, they care about the quality of design space for their children, and they don't really have an outlet for that, and that's probably one of the reasons they write to me. Um, increasingly, however, sharing this stakeholder space is artists and designers of all sorts, and people that are interested in general in urban transformations, okay? And again, everything interesting is happening at these boundaries. So if you're not pushing out into that boundary space, if you're not feeling that boundary against you, feeling that you're touching some of the other stakeholders, then you're really not participating in this wider conversation. 
We could also think of it in terms of design space or the elements that we think of when you sit down at your table and design a space for children. And this, of course, is kind of the 600-pound gorilla in the room all the time, isn't it? Is safety. But I would go past that and say I've learned on the blog that a lot of people are making decisions that they kind of attribute to health and safety, but really they're doing it out of, for ease. Really they're doing it for ease. It's not that anybody's requiring, requiring them to make those decisions, but it's easy to specify an order, it's easy to install, and it's easy to maintain, or at least there's the, created the perception that that is the case. So I would put ease here as kind of an issue. But, but those are real things. I think a lot of people want to complain about health and safety and say, well, that just shouldn't be there. It is there, all right? Just like this, this, the physical states of water, you can't say, I don't want to be a liquid at this temperature and pressure, because it's going to be anyway, right? You're limited by the laws of physics there. But we need to find creative ways to work at the boundary space of those two. So the other thing that's going to come in as a design consideration is simply child development. And um, one of the things that happened when I first started the blog, and again was trying to specify this playground for my, my little church, was, um, I mean, I'm a scientist, I have access to all the research literature in the world. I quickly went to the research um, archives and started looking up things about child development and playground, playgrounds. And I was stunned at the disconnect between child development research and what was currently offered as playground space. I mean, it was just, it was like they, they didn't even know each other existed. It was that bad. So once again, we need to create a boundary space there where they're, where they're speaking to each other. And only recently, as Tim has said, in the last three or four years, have finally we started a conversation with the site on more than a few very scattered playgrounds where part of this design space that we're looking at is the site, its natural elements, its history, its views into the wider landscape, that sort of thing. And I think to me, as a person that loves landscapes, loves history, loves garden history, to finally see playgrounds take on their site has, has been really, really heartening to me as a person. But once again, the interesting things are going to happen at these boundaries, right? As we balance the safety that exists and incorporate the site and the child development learnings with that. So, um, so if everything interesting then happens at the boundaries, what do you do? Even if we think about the kind of ways that we artificially classify playgrounds in, in the, for those of us that are kind of in the community, in the know, as an adventure playground or a natural playground or a playground formed primarily of equipment, what we want to do, and that went too fast, it was supposed to go slowly, is to grow at the boundaries, <laughs> right? So basically we want to widen our idea of what each of these phases means. Now you can do that because this is a metaphysical concept. I can't do that in the phases of water. So here my scientific analogy breaks down. I don't have the ability to change those phase boundaries, but you do. And that's basically by widening your concept, conception of what each of these things mean and allowing them to overlap and grow into each other. So how might we do that? 